0: Amen. Thank you, Pastor Jamie. Good morning, church family. We're an exciting morning. Amen. Celebration. Amen. You can one person's excited. Christina's the only one. Well, we just celebrated communion together, a time where we reflect what Christ has done for us and the new life that can come as a result, that same new life that's reflected with baptisms, with with baby dedications. And so I just want to take a few moments with you, to share a short reflection. And I've titled it, Life-Giving Friendship. Life-Giving Friendship. And I want to read a scripture to begin. One of my favorite scriptures I love. John 20, verse 31. It says, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These things are written, all of Scripture. John saying, I write this that you would be pointed to Jesus, that you would come to know who he is, but not just intellectually, that you would come to know who he is in such a way that your whole life is transformed, that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is why we gather and over the last few weeks, you've heard me and Jamie and Sam preach. And there's nothing better than when God does something and we recognize it rather than us trying to do something, amen? And so Sam and Jamie and I didn't get together and say, okay, y'all going to preach on this, y'all going to preach on that. We, we just did what we did. And you saw Sam preached on friendship, and then I preach on the Word of God, and then Pastor Jamie preached on the Spirit of God. Because that's been the focus. That's been what God's doing. It's been the focus on at community groups. It's been the focus during the midweek service on Wednesday night. Unity of the Spirit. Together, talking about, focusing on what God has for CFCNB in this new season. And so I want to mention these things. I want to take a look at what's essential when we look at the kind of church that we want to be. And first of all, of course, we want to be word-centered. The Bible is our authority. It's God's word given to us. We want to make reading the Bible a part of our regular routine. And like we've learned about and the study that we're doing in our community groups, there's a book called How to Eat Your Bible, and it's for sale in the back. And whether you're in a community group or not, it's a great resource. But the point that he makes is that it, it's less important on you know we, we understand you know they have read through the bible in a year and but it's less important on how quickly we get through it and it's more important that we understand it and so the focus should be on reading and understanding the bible and we need each other for that we need the spirit of god one of the points he made is we need to learn to pray ahead of time to ask god to illuminate to make clear to us but so many people get discouraged because either they start a Bible in a year plan and they lose track or they don't keep up or, or they read something they don't understand and they just don't want to ask somebody else. They don't want to, you know, they seem like, uh oh, other people seem to get it. I don't. And so they just stop. And so I don't care if it's the Bible in 10 years is your plan. The point is engage the Word of God. The Word of God needs to be a priority in our lives. So we want to be a word-centered church. And then, of course, we want to be a Spirit-filled church. We need to rely on the Spirit of God to fill us, to empower us. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Amen? Amen? And so, the Spirit of God makes us more like Christ. We call that process sanctification. Theological term that simply means being more made into the image of Jesus. That as we walk, becoming more and more like Him. So the Holy Spirit makes us more like Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us power to witness. It gives us gifts, allows us to be bold, all for the witness, for the building of his church. The Holy Spirit guides us into truth, which means convicting us of sin, which means revealing God's word to us. And the Holy Spirit brings us closer to other believers. We see this unity of the Holy Spirit in Acts 4.32. Acts It says, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they have. There was a sense of community that the Holy Spirit had instilled. In our Western view, we read Scripture, and we say, what is this saying to me? What is God saying to me? And don't misunderstand me, because there's an application to that. The Word of God speaks to us as individuals, absolutely. It speaks to our situation. It speaks to our heart. It convicts us of sin, But the notion of saying, what is God saying to me, would have been foreign throughout most of the church's history. Throughout most of the church's history, the Bible would have been read as, what is God saying to us, His people? There was very much a sense of God speaking to His people, to the church. And so it's easy for me, as one individual, to get discouraged and say, well, what can I do how can I counteract, you know, the power of the enemy and the, cult, the wave of culture? What can I do? And we can get discouraged and say, well, I can't, I can't do much. But when we recognize, what can we do? What can this local expression, what can this community of believers, or what can Christ's church as a whole do? And then we see the power. Jesus calls us to change the world. And so, The Holy Spirit will bring us to a place of unity, of love for one another, of real community, where we are aligned with one another, where we are compelled to unite for a greater mission. Which brings us to our third, and what I want to focus on this morning is we want to be a place of real friendships. So we want to be a place that's led by the Word of God, that's led by the Spirit of God, and a place where people can have real friendships with Jesus and with each other. Authentic relationships. I was listening to a podcast the other day. Uh, There was an 11-year-old boy, very mature kid, and his parents were interviewing him because he said it was tough to get old. He's 11. It was tough to get old. But then he had some very mature reflections, and here's what he said. He said, it's easier to make friends when you're little. He said, the older you get, the more you judge people. When you're little, you just want to be friends with people who are nice and who want to spend time with you and play with you. And then as you get older, you find all kinds of reasons not to be friends with people. And then he said, so when people get older, they're more afraid to open up. Pretty profound for an 11-year-old, right? See what he brought to our attention is that we're all afraid of rejection. That each of us have this sense that if people really knew me, that they couldn't really love me. You can go back to the book of Genesis in the very beginning, the result of sin is shame. They were naked and they were afraid, so they hid. Some of us, even as Christians, are still hiding. We're still living in shame. We're still afraid of rejection. But we're called to be in authentic relationships. We're called to be real with the Lord, and we be real with each other. I want to confess to you, because it's cheaper than therapy. I never feel more inadequate as a Christ follower, when I look at ministering to my wife, ministering to my children, or ministering to those closest to me. It's in those places where where the Lord just deals with me because I just, you know, you can get familiar, you can get comfortable, you can get complacent, and you can put more effort and focus on the people that don't know you than the people that know you the closest. And sometimes you can get that sense of, man, I shouldn't have said that. Man, I shouldn't have done that. Man, I am a failure as a Christian. A lot of people walked away from the church, walked away from ministry, walked away from marriages because of that sense of failure and shame. So I want to read to you now from Romans Paul's magnum opus. And, and we can read the Bible and we can look at things from a purely intellectual standpoint. And the, the book we're reading talks about that as well. But the Bible is more than an intellectual book. It's a spiritual book. And so this is Paul's magnum opus. It's his greatest work. It's his greatest sort of theological treatise. But it is much, much more than that. And we can read the Bible and we can think people are removed from everyday life. Like these, you know, these people, they were so good. I love when people say, well, people in the Bible are so good. David was a train wreck. Hello? He was. He was a man after God's own heart. And at the same time, he had an affair. And then he killed the husband of the woman he had an affair with, who was a good, honorable man. Yet David was a man after God's own heart because David knew what it meant to repent. See, sometimes we're sorry for the effect of our sin, but we're not sorry that we've sinned. True repentance, what David knew, is that it was he was living for an audience of one. What Paul is doing here is not just teaching. Paul's confessing. Paul's testifying. Paul is sharing his heart with his community. Paul... Paul's being real. And I think we can read Romans again and again and again, and we can miss it. We can find the deep theological truths, and we can miss that Paul is sharing his heart. So I want to look at Romans 7. I just want to look at verses 4 through 7, and then 14 through 25. And I want to point some things out. Verse 4. Paul says, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit for God. What Paul's saying is, "What you, you were once a slave to sin, you were a slave to the law, now you're a slave to Christ. Now you belong to another. And then he says, and the reason that you belong to another is to bear fruit for God, is to... Live for his glory. Is to make a difference in the lives of other people. Verse 5, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that when we bore fruit, it was for death. Paul saying, in other words, if you keep living in the flesh, if you keep doing the wrong things, then it, it, it spirals, it continues. Bad leads to bad, leads to bad, leads to death. And Paul's saying, so the fruit of the way you once lived was death. But now, verse 6, or instead of that, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. In other words, Paul's saying, look, now, rather than a list of do's and don'ts, rather than being a slave to this law, to trying to keep the, I can't do this, I can't do this, I have to do that, I have to do that, Paul's saying, now, you're submitted to the Spirit of God. Now you're partnered with Jesus. Now you're walking with Him. Now, it's not the old way, but it's the new way. It's a different way. And then in verse 7, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Paul's saying, the law, God's objective standard of what's right and wrong, is not abolished. Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the law, but fulfill it. So Paul's saying, that's not bad. And in fact, he goes on in a more practical way, and he says this. I would not have known what sin is, had it not been for the law. So Paul's going, look, if there was no objective truth, if there was no God, if there was no standard, then we're all left with preferences. We're all left with what I want, what you want, what I feel, what you feel. And instead, Paul's saying, no, 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 the law is good. It has a purpose. For I would not have known what coveting was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And then in verse 14, he says this. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And then Paul's about to pour out his heart here. And don't miss it because he's very repetitive, and he's very clear, and he's desperate, and he's being real. And he said, I do not understand what I do. So Paul's beginning by going, for all my you know, intellectual ability, for all my, my theological prowess, I want to begin, as I teach you now, to say, I don't get it. I don't even understand it. It doesn't even make sense to me. Paul is saying, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate I do. Paul's going, I read the Word of God. I have the Spirit of God. I, I walk with Jesus. And yet, the stuff I want to do, the stuff that I know I should do, I don't do that stuff. And Paul's going, in fact, the stuff I do, he's not saying it's just stuff that, you know, he shouldn't do. He's like, it's the stuff I hate. I hate it. I can't stand it. It's the worst stuff in my life. And he's saying, in the stuff that I want to do, I find myself so often not doing it. This isn't just a theological work. This is a confessional. Paul is crying out. He's bearing his soul. I don't know how many times before. I read Romans before I got this. It's like, oh, Paul, you're so smart. We can miss it. We can, we can see the Bible as Impractical. As a book that just speaks these things. Some of them we understand, some of them we don't. But Paul's trying to be very practical here. Day-to-day stuff. I preached this in the first service. And I had a brother come up to me. I couldn't even get down the stairs, and he was weeping. Walking down the aisle. And he was saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I just thought, well, that's just the gospel. That's just the gospel that we have no hope. We have no no possibility of change but for Jesus. And so Paul's saying, and if, I, if what I do not want to do, I do, I agree that the law is good. In other words, what Paul saying is, it's not a question of whether there's a God. It's not a question of whether what he says is good and perfect. I know that it is. I know that it is in my spirit and in my soul. That's absolutely the case saying, he's not and against the law. That's what some people do. Say, well, truth is relative. You know, if you're a philosopher, you can go, well, is that statement relative? And you can kind of get guess, spot. truth is relative, okay. What is that? So everybody's truth is the same. Paul's going, no, 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 truth is not relative. Truth is objective. God has the standard. Say, I know the law is good. I know truth is real. I know Jesus is who he claimed to be. And then there's a little bit of hope here in verse 17 because he says, As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. And that's a very deep theological truth that Paul's bringing up there because he's saying, I understand that despite my best efforts, that despite knowing the truth, that despite being filled with the Spirit, my flesh will never be converted. Now, just like he's going to go on to say, where just because where sin abounds, grace abounds. So where where sin is, there's more grace. So do you keep on sinning? No. So he's not the the conclusion is not then do whatever you want. The conclusion is you keep fighting. But Paul's saying, but understand that this side of eternity, none of us are going to be perfect. That we're all going to continue to sin. And so what Paul's saying is I know that it's, it's my flesh in me. I know that there's a component of me that I'm going to have to fight against. For I know, verse 18, that good itself does not dwell in me, in my sinful nature, in my natural state. There is no goodness. So Paul's now going from his, his state, from our condition, from the struggle we have, to the reality, and then to the hope. For I desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Paul's saying, in my natural ability, there is no hope for me to do anything good apart from Christ. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Paul's saying, this isn't every now and then. Paul's saying, every day I'm faced with the reality of who I am. You know, For those of you who don't know my testimony, I had a horrible addiction to alcohol and drugs at least a decade. And I went to Teen Challenge, but it was really sort of nice to blame everything on addiction. Right? That was like my catch-all. So it's like, well, of course I'm I'm self-centered. I'm an addict. Well, of course I'm lazy. I'm an addict. Of course I'm irresponsible. I'm an addict. And then suddenly, I begin to get help, and God delivers me from that. And then I'm left with me. And I look around and go, I am still a mess. Amen. The addiction's gone. That one big thing is gone. But now I got some work to do. And you know how many times people at that point, they give up, they walk away? Paul could have given up. Paul could have been like, man, I'm a mess. I keep doing the wrong thing. Look at, look at this Christian. He's, he's better than me. Now, if I do not do what I want to do, verse 20, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. This is an encouragement. It is a teaching, but it's also an intimate confession. It's also Paul saying, guys, look, I want to share my heart with you. I want to tell you what my day-to-day Christian walk looks like. I don't want you to think things about me that aren't true. Paul's writing to other brothers and sisters to instruct and teach, but also to bring the reality of our struggle with the flesh in this world. And he says, verse 21, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I love the word of God. I'm nurtured by the word of God. I have my devotion time. I pray. I walk with Jesus. He's saying, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And then he says this, verse 24, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Maybe in your life, you've got to the place and you've just been I give up. Like, I'm, I'm a mess, You know, I I heard a quote once, and it said, all those who are in the world think they're good people, and all those who are, you know, saved realize how wretched they are. Paul's going, man, if I'm honest with myself, I'm a mess. Who's going to help me? What hope do I have? But Paul doesn't end there. That's not Paul's conclusion. Here's where the encouragement comes in, verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen to that. Paul's going, yes, I struggle. Yes, I keep doing the stuff I don't want to do. Yes, I feel wretched. But that's not the end. I don't mope. I don't have a pity potty. I don't give up. I don't stop fighting. I cling desperately to the cross of Jesus Christ. And I need my community to confess to, to say, walk with me. See, the solution it's to be centered on the word, is to be submitted to the spirit, and is to be committed to the community. Centered on the word, submitted to the spirit, and committed to the community. That's what church looks like. That's why we're here. Real relationships where we can share our struggles and yet encourage one another in Christ. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 10 through 11, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. That we may be friends with Jesus and friends with one another. Therefore, verse 11, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. We want to be a place where we can have real friendships with Jesus where people can encounter Him. You know, I love when people say, "Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't go to church. You know, I, I don't, I don't like the church. I don't, you know, hypocrites and you know Christians. I don't like, you know, you know. And I'm like, "Yeah, no, I get it." And they're like, "I, I am a pastor." I'm like, "Yeah, we don't follow Christians at my church. We follow Jesus. Want to talk about Him? We'll talk about Him. Because when He was here, you know what He didn't like? Hypocrisy and empty religion." And people who are clean on the outside but not real on the inside. And so you're in good company. Cause that's not what it's about. You know, for a good part of my life I was the guy in the barrooms playing the role. I wanted to be who I thought everybody wanted me to be, but I wasn't that wasn't me. It was a mask. Because I thought if they saw me, if they knew me, they wouldn't love me. And so I pretended people that do that in the church don't play church don't play church it's the worst thing you can be worst thing you can do we're called to be real and see when i'm real that has an effect on you and when you're real that has an effect on me because people don't need to come here broken and encounter a whole bunch of people that pretend they got all together how you know i'm great everything's great and then they're like man everything's not great with me so you know And they don't come back because that's where they see churches. It's a place where a whole bunch of people are perfect or they think they're perfect or they lie and tell everybody they're perfect, but I'm broken. We're supposed to be a place where people can encounter the healing, powerful presence of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. And in fact, everything I'm talking about is friendship with one another. But if you want just a point of reference for how we're a friendship with the world, see the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because when Jesus is teaching the religious people and he's saying, love your neighbor, they they ask questions. Well, who's my neighbor, Jesus? Is my neighbor the guy that votes like me and looks like me and lives near me and, you know, thinks like me? Is that my neighbor? And so Jesus makes the point by going, no, let me tell you a story. And in Jesus' story, the priestly class epically fails, and the priest himself epically fails, and the person who shows neighborly love is the person most despised by the religious class. So Jesus is going, you want to know who your neighbor is? See this story. Because our, our ministry, the way we engage the world, has to be an overflow of our relationship with Jesus and the way we relate to one another and we have no business trying to relate to the world if we can't even get along in here. If, like, that little kid would be like, well, that brother, I don't like the way he sings, and I don't like what she wears to church, and I... What? We're so, we're so truth-filled and justice with everybody else, and we're so grace-filled, you know. We ought to be a little more truthful with our own condition. We ought to look at ourselves and be like, man, I'm wretched. Instead, we look at everybody else, and then we think they're wretched, and we think, oh, but I'm, you know, I'm good. I have a friend who said, once we judge everybody else by their actions, we judge ourselves by our intentions. There's a world that's watching how we live and how we love church. We're called to be surrendered, centered on the word, submitted to the spirit, and committed to the community. That's what real church is all about. So I know the worship team's going to come up now. And I just want to pray, and then we're going to transition to the baptism, to the baby dedication, to an outward profession of what we just talked about. To saying, I want, I want a new life. I want things to be different. I want to be real. Because can't, God can't meet you and heal you and walk with you if you think you're all set. He can't be the Lord if you're the Lord. So, Father, would you meet us? in this place. Would you continue to have your way this morning as we celebrate true freedom that Paul acknowledges that though I am wretched, thanks be to God for the power, for the freedom, for the joy and peace that we can have in Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.